Well, we've been learning why we're here, why we're here as a church, why we're here as individuals, and what we've seen the Word of God teaches us very clearly is that the reason that the church is here and the reason you and I are here is to preach the gospel to all nations. And we've looked at to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. We're not going to go back over all those elements, but we've been spending several, really several months now looking at what the gospel is. And we've seen that it's boiled down to its simplest form. It is simply the good news. And we've been looking at what that good news is. And we saw that in Romans chapter 1 it says that the reason the gospel is so powerful is because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So the gospel reveals something about God and what it reveals about God is His righteousness. And we saw there's two sides to that righteousness. The side we so often miss and that's the side that the Bible teaches is what God's righteousness is. That God in Himself, God in His nature from inside to the outside is righteous and holy and pure. It's hard for our minds to grasp that and to wrap around that because we don't know anything that's pure but 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 God is he's pure he's holy he is perfectly righteous and we saw that God created man that way created him in his image and then we saw in Genesis chapter 3 that Satan came in to, 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 to throw that out of balance and that he came the way he basically did that was to get that man and that woman to take their lives into their own hands and to basically become their own God and that's what man has struggled with ever since then and we saw that the root of all sin not the fruit of it not the deeds of sin but the root of all sin is self promoting myself protecting myself exalting myself uh, self-will I'm going to do what I want to do and boy we live in a society that is just so obviously rooted in that it is saturated with self my rights my body's rights my rights to do this you know somebody crossed my rights and I'm getting offended the only reason people get offended is they're looking at themselves how what you said affects me so everybody that's offended out there is because they're looking at themselves. And this whole idea of tolerance sounds so wonderful. But tolerance is based on how things affect me. The commandment of the Bible is to love one another. And if we're loving one another, we're all going to tolerate one another. We're going to go beyond toleration. Toleration is a cheap substitute for love. Because the root of toleration is me. How are people seeing me? The root of love is what do you need? What do you like? What does God want to do for you? And so we saw that, and then we saw how God brought this to the, into, the, into His people. And from Adam until Moses, that people were sinning and therefore they were dying, but they didn't know why, because they didn't know what God expected. They didn't understand His righteousness. And then we saw in Gen- Exodus 20 that God came down on a mountain and gave Moses what we call the Ten Commandments. And those were God's standard of righteousness. And then we went into Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus took it to another level, where Jesus said, not only are those commandments written on stone, but here's how God lives them out. It's a heart issue, not a deed. Because if you read the Ten Commandments, by and large, there are things you do or don't do. But Jesus took it to another level. He talks about what you're thinking about, what you're, what's going on in your heart. So that adultery is not just what you physically do with your body, but it's what you lust after, that coveting, that stealing isn't just taking something from somebody else, but it can be coveting what's theirs. So they're hard issues, and when you bring it down to the hard issue, we find out we all fall woefully short. And then we went into Romans chapter 3, and we saw that's exactly what God's purpose was. The reason God gave the law and the Ten Commandments was not expecting anybody to ever live up to them, because in order to live up to them, you've got to live up to them 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 52 weeks a year for your entire life. If you ever violate them once, you violated all of them. Well, uh, we can be pretty good, but nobody's ever going to do that. And so we found out in Romans chapter 3 that the reason God gave the law was to show them that they needed help outside of themselves, that they could not do it themselves. Because once man drank of the waters of self, there is in our flesh a desire to somehow contribute something to our redemption, to our salvation, somehow add something to it. Even once we're saved, you know, somehow I'm going to make myself a little better Christian. I'm going to make myself, you know, and the ideal out there the self-made man there's no such thing not in God's eyes either God's made you or you're a failure because you can't make yourself in God's eyes only you can you can only submit yourself and allow God to do that work in you and so we saw in Romans chapter 3 that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and then we saw that it was so that we could receive the gift of grace because you don't understand how much you can't receive the free gift if you still think you can earn it. 
if you still think you contribute something to it that blocks you from receiving the free gift of grace. So the Spirit, I love that old hymn, Amazing Grace, because it talks, talks in there, I think in the second verse, or one of them, it says, you know, grace taught my heart to fear. It took grace to realize the, the, the fear of God. And grace my fear relieved. And the church today has skipped that first part. We're so focused on the grace that God's given to us, we don't understand, we don't value that grace because we don't see what it saved us from. It saved us from ourselves. And so we've looked at that, and then we ended two weeks ago when, I, when we talked about this last, we ended up in Romans, and we talked, saw how in Romans chapter, chapter 8, which is the, the, the encapsuling of the good news, that says there's therefore, we went through Romans 7 and saw Paul's cry out of trying to do this himself. And he said, every time I want to do what's right, I don't do what's right. And every time I try not to do what's wrong, I go out and do the very thing I don't want to do. There, you know, I find this principle then, then there's good down in my heart, good intentions, but I don't have the ability to do it. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And Romans 8 is the answer. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. And here's why. Because what the law could not do because of the weakness of my flesh. Because the law relied on my flesh to justify me. What the law could not do with the weakness of my flesh, God just did. What I could not do, God just did. God did. And here's how He did it. Sending His own Son in the likeness of flesh, He condemned my sin in His flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, our own efforts, but according to trusting in the Spirit and the, what the Spirit has done in us. So that's where we ended last time. That's the good news. The good news is what you could not do, God did. God just did it for you and gave it to you and me as a free, free gift. And freeze the part we struggle with. Yeah, but I, in this world, you've got to earn something. You've got to know. If you try to earn it, you blow it. It's a free gift. Now, out in the world, we understand what free is. You get a coupon, you know, and you get in the mail and says, go to whatever shore, you know, tomorrow between 10 and 12. You're going to get a free great gift. Why do they do that? Because they want to get you in the store, and they know if they offer you something free... They know if they give pastors a free lunch, they're going to get them to come to a meeting. <laughs> Something free, yeah! But how, why do we struggle with the free gift of God? The greatest gift there is, the free gift of God. And so that's where we ended up last time. Now we're going to look at another dimension of this. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. little verse in here that... Some of you may know, you may not know where it is. But I want to start into the next dimension of this by looking at this. 2 Corinthians 3, chapter 3, verse 5. Now Paul's talking in here about grace. Verse 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as being of ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. That's written by the Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. That's written by the Apostle Paul, one of the most educated men of his day. That's written by the Apostle Paul, who was so powerful in his teaching, who started so many churches. And Paul's, put that verse back up there. Paul's understanding is this. We are not sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is completely from God. Verse 6. Who has made us sufficient as ministers or servants of the new covenant. That's what we're talking about. And this is what I want you to see. Not the letter of it, but the spirit of it. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now he's talking there about the letter of the law. He's referring to the Ten Commandments and the letter of it that says you shall not do these things and you shall do these things. And, if, and when that is presented to people and they realize I can't do it, it kills, it destroys, it tears down our confidence. And most husbands, and I've got to confess that I did this too, and wives too. 
We, begin to, we get saved, we begin to read the Word, we begin to find out, especially when we get into Ephesians chapter 5 about husbands' responsibilities and wives' responsibilities, and the husband gets a hold of the verse that says, wives are to submit to their husband, and he says, you're not submitting to me. And she says, yeah, but it says husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. When you love me as Christ loved the church, then I'll submit to you. And he comes back and says, that means you're not submitting. And what they're doing is they're taking the letter of the law and using it as a knife to hurt each other. By the letter of the law, Paul means the literal words. So the words of this book, instead of giving life, can actually kill. I don't mean the physical body, but kill hope, kill vision, kill peace, kill joy, kill love, kill relationships. And there are many relationships, unfortunately, that have been killed by preaching at one another. You will never get anyone saved by preaching at them. I can testify to that. I have relatives that when I was first saved, I was dangerous. Because I, I absorbed so much of the... I, could, I would stay up wee hours of the morning just devouring my Bible. But what I was gathering was information because I was so hungry for it. And we had an occasion early on to spend some time with, with one of our relatives on my wife's side. And I'm telling you, it took years to repair the damage. Because you understand I was a lawyer. My favorite pastime growing up was debating. Actually, that was the nice term. I liked arguing. And I argued for the purpose of winning the argument. And these arguments I had with this relative over the Word of God, I won the argument. But I lost him. It took years to repair the damage. We not only do that with each other, we can also do it with ourselves. And so the reason we're talking about this is we can go through all the principles we've learned about the gospel and preaching the gospel, the principles we've learned about, about the righteousness of God and the Ten Commandments and what God requires. We can learn the principles of Romans chapter 8. And if all we've learned is the letter of it, what it means, if all we understand is the doctrine of it, we're going to miss the life that's in it. Because remember the key verse we started with was in Romans 1.16 which says, In the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And when we began this, we looked at what that meant. Salvation doesn't just mean getting into heaven. It means deliverance from every effect of sin. Depression, discouragement, all the junk, uh, all, the, all the addictions that go with it, the power of God is in that gospel to deliver people. And yet what's missing so much in the church today is the only goal we seem to have is to get people so that they don't go to hell and go to heaven. And that, if that's all we do, that's wonderful. But what attracts people to the gospel is there's something for us here and now also. Jesus didn't walk on the earth, and we're going to look at that, and just say, you know, repent because the world's coming to an end and I'm here to save you. If you don't repent, you're all going to hell. No, Jesus went out among the people and preached the gospel with his actions as well as with his words. In fact, what we're going to see is he acted more than he spoke. He did more things for people than sermons that he preached. So there's something we're missing. And maybe we know the letter of this. Maybe we know the, the, the four you know, principal law, the laws of salvation. We know, the, we know certain principles. We've got doctrines down. But it's the spirit of it that gives life. So what we're going to begin to talk about today is not just the gospel. We're going to look at the heart of the gospel. Because the heart of the gospel is the key to the gospel. And it's God's own heart. So turn with me, if you will, to first of all, let's go to Luke chapter 15. We've talked about this before, but I want to show you where it is. Luke chapter 15. Simple verse. One, verse one. Then all the, all, all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. Okay, yeah, what's... All the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to Him to hear Him. Now we've talked about the righteousness of God. We've talked about a pure and holy God. Jesus was the embodiment of that. Jesus was absolutely holy, absolutely righteous. 
The devil could find no place in him. And yet the world tends to see us as holier than thou, looking down our nose at people, and here's the only man that ever was holy, living on the earth, and people flocked to be near him. Not just as to be near him, but to hear what he had to say. And the question, I really feel God's asking the church today, why don't they want to come and hear you? Why don't the sinners and the tax collector didn't just mean the IRS in that day. It, mean, it meant the, 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 the successful people of the day, the publicans. Why don't the people, the, the dregs of society, why don't, why don't they want to come sit in here and hear what we have to say? Something's missing. It's not like that, as if they don't have any needs. It's not as if people of our society today are so much better than they were in Jesus' day. We're certainly not. So it's not as if there's no need out there. It's not as if people's lives aren't falling apart. It's not as if, as if sin isn't just rampant in the world today. Then why are they not coming to sit and to hear what we have to say? Something's, there's a gap here somewhere. We have, in many ways, more doctrine than Jesus taught. We have more things to teach than Jesus taught. In some ways, we have more information to give them. But there was something about him. It wasn't what he taught. There was something about him that drew people to him. Ever been around somebody you're just drawn to? You know, it, it, it doesn't have to even be a religious person. Somebody you just want to be around. Just, you know, and there are other people you just... <laughs> Love you. I think I need to go talk to, this, to Ron over here. You know, there are just some people you just want to be around. And there's some people that you just really don't want to be around. You'll do the minimum you need to do to be polite, hopefully. But you just really don't, aren't drawn to them. You ever stop and think about what that is? Is it their cologne? <laughs> is it their perfume? I mean, is it, their, is it the way they look? Most likely not. But you can tell, if you're at all sensitive, whether people are interested in you. It's like somebody coming up, you know, and saying... Come here, stand up. Tim, how, how you doing, Tim? It's, it's good to see you today, Tim. Bless you, brother. Bless you. Yeah, that doesn't create a warm, engaging thing because I'm not, I'm just acknowledging him, but I don't really care, you know, how he's really doing. And you can sense that with people. The question is, when somebody walks in Faith Christian Center, do they feel welcome? I don't mean do they have people welcome them. Do they feel welcome? Do they feel as if we really care about what they're, what's going on in their lives? Or are we so busy seeing the people we want to see or are concerned about our own issues that we really don't even notice them? Or we may be polite and, you know, friendly, but we don't really care. Something about Jesus... Something about him that they felt comfortable being around. A man who was absolutely holy. A man who could sit there and by the anointing of the Spirit could tell them, read their mail. A man, if he, just, if he spoke the letter of it, we'd all die on the spot. And yet he didn't, did he? Even when he had a woman brought to him by the religious people that were so... That's why they were mad at him. Because he wasn't judging people. He was mad, they were mad at him because he wasn't pointing fingers at the, what they were doing wrong. They were mad at him, so one day they thought they could really catch him. And they caught this woman. I wonder where the guy was. They weren't too concerned about him, but they caught the woman and they brought him and they threw him down, threw her down at his feet. It says, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. And the law of Moses says she should be stoned. That's what the law required. 
What do you say? They were challenging this. There was something about him that was a, uh, about him that they felt that he was. They wanted to challenge this because it was, they couldn't. Ha- they were like the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son, because that story is about three different people: the prodigal brother that went away, and the prodigal brother that stayed. He was as off as the brother that went away, because when the brother that went away came back. He wouldn't forgive him because he didn't deserve forgiveness. And so they throw this woman down at Jesus' feet. And if you've been around long enough, you know the story. And Jesus doodles in the sand. And there's lots of commentaries written about what he's doodling. doesn't say. It's not one of the questions I'm going to ask when I see him. And he's doodling in the sand... And they're all waiting. Now, I'm just guessing, but my guess is he's praying. He's looking for the Holy Spirit's wisdom about what, which is a good thing for you to do in those situations. He's looking for the Holy Spirit's wisdom, and then he stands up, and he says, all right, you're right. Moses' law says that she deserves to be stoned. Let's talk about who has the right to administer this. Let he among you who was without sin throw the first stone. He didn't argue whether she was guilty or not. He talked about who had the right to administer the judgment. And he says the qualification is you've got to be without sin. And it's a wonderful statement in there. It says they began to walk away starting with the oldest, who most likely had the most to remember. And then, by the way, there was one man in the group that was without sin. He was the one that was doodling. And the one who had the right to judge her stands up and says, Woman, where are your accusers? And I'm sure she was flustered at this point. She says, Well, they've all gone away. He says, Then you go also, but sin no more. What was it about him that drew people to him not just to be around him because he was a big figure and important, but to hear what he had to say. See, people won't listen to us unless they want to hear what we have to say. And the mistake that Christians make so often is we try to tell them what we know they need to hear without having earned the right for them to hear it from us. They've got to know you care about them, really care about them, before they're going to trust you enough to listen to them. And we're so busy trying to do what we're supposed to do that we don't really care about them. We care about doing what we're supposed to do, which is no different than when we're just out doing our own thing anyway. All right. So what we're going to look at is the heart that's behind the gospel that changes us. Not the information of what God, not the facts of what God has done for us, but the heart of God that's behind it. What motivated God to do what He did for us that we've read? That brings life and light into the dark and thirsty souls of our lives and the lives of others. The heart of God that despite our pride, our stubbornness, loves us all the way to the end. The, the, the uh, first verse in John 13 ends with these words. And Jesus loved them to the end. Now that word end in Greek means the end of the time, but it also means to the fullest. Jesus loved them to the end, all the way through the cross and through the resurrection. So what we're going to begin to look at is the heart of the gospel is really God's heart behind what He did for us in sending Jesus. Why He did this. Because so often what we've done is we take the facts of what God's done and separated them from the motive and heart of why He's done it. And so we understand what God did, but we don't know who He is or what He's like. Psalm 103 talks about the difference between Moses and the children of Israel. It says, Israel knew God's deeds... Moses knew his ways. Israel knew the decisions and the actions that God took. 
But Moses knew God's nature, his heart, his motive. They, he knew what his moods were like. And so that's what we're going to begin to look at. And of course, the best place to begin is John chapter 3. Probably the most famous book in the Bible, verse in the Bible. You see it in sporting events. And it's the truth. But the question is, are we communicating that? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. They may not be able to put it up there, but verse 17 says, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. If God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, then why would He be sending His church into the world to do the same thing? If God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but instead sent His Son into the world to save the world, why would the church think that we're in the world to condemn the world? Will we not be in here for the same purpose that the head of the body, which is the church, is? So the first thing we see is that for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. A number of years ago on, on Christmas, I pitched, 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 what happens when you've been away? I preached a message. I may have pitched it too. I preached a message on one word, and the word was so. S-O. It's such a simple little two-letter word and stuck in the middle of this verse. But it is a key word in this verse. Because if you take that word out, it simply declares a fact. It says, God loved the world and gave His only begotten Son. But that's not what this verse is saying. This verse is not informing us of something that happened 2,000 years ago. This verse is not telling us of an action that God did. It talks about the action, but it's talking about why God did it. What this verse is saying is God doesn't just love the world. I want to show you how much He loved the world. Because the word so is a comparative term. It's telling us how much. Because you could read it this way. For this is how much God loved the world. This is the proof of not just that He loved it, but the measure of how much God loved the world. Oh, by the way, we need to mention who it is He loved. It doesn't say for God so loved the church. Because there wasn't one then. It doesn't even say, for God so loved the Jewish people, although they were His children. It says, for God so loved the world. Psalm 2 talks about praying and God will give the heathen to the church, to us as His inheritance. At this retreat that Pastor Ray and I were at, one of the pastors got up and he was complaining to God about these horrible people that were coming into his church. I mean, they didn't smell good, they didn't look good, they weren't acting right, they weren't living good Christian lives. And God says, you've been asking me for the heathen of the world, you got them. <laughs> but we have this idea, wait a minute, this is our church. We don't want anybody disturbing our church. We, want, we, don't, want any, oh, we don't want anybody sitting in my seat. <laughs> Especially if they're not cleaned up and dressed the way I am. Especially if they don't believe what I believe. I mean, we may actually get some sinners in here. That would be terrible. They'd ruin our church. <laughs> what if that were God's attitude? What if God's attitude is, hey, you know what? We got a good thing going here in heaven. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, wait, we're all perfect here. Why would we want those people in here? My goodness, their lives are messed up. They're selfish, prideful, can't, you know, can't stop from eating the things they shouldn't eat, can't stop from doing the things they shouldn't do. The harder they try to do what's right, the more they mess up. Why would we want those kind of people here? This is great what we got here. We got the angels that do what we say. They don't do what we say. They can't stay obedient for more than 24 hours. Why would we want them here? Aren't you glad God didn't have that attitude? Because there's someone else that says, I'll have them. 
They're just like me. I'm rebellious and selfish and prideful down here in hell. As we do, you know, there's a, there's a short story by C.S. Lewis. And in there he talks about hell. Now, this is not a scriptural basis thing. But his concept of hell, it's a place where everybody can do just what they want to do. With no restraint. Imagine if anybody... It was getting kind of like that in the world today. And he says, everybody lived as far away from everybody else as they could. <laughs> well, we won't go there. All right. <laughs> For God so loved the world. And the measure of how much He loved us is He gave. For God so loved, so loved... I just challenge you to meditate on that. He so loved me. Because you're part of the world. He so loved that obnoxious neighbor next door. He so loved that boss. I just love to share a piece of my mind with, but I can't afford to part with it. He so loved them. He's, but can you, when you begin to get a taste of what God's like for, love is like for other people, it opens you up to seeing how much He loves you. And when you get a taste for how much He loves you, it opens you up for how much He loves other people. Because when we're walking in the love of God but don't, like other, don't, don't care for other people, we're not walking in the love of God. You need to move on. Ephesians chapter 1. These verses, and I've shared this with you when we went through this on a Wednesday, morning, Wednesday, Wednesday night. Ephesians chapter 1. You won't get the heart of this message by just listening to it once. You have to meditate on these scriptures over and over again. We're going to start in verse 3. This is so rich and thick, but we're going to take it apart a little bit. And I want to bring out these kind of words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. So the first thing we see about God's heart and nature is He's holding nothing back from us. Every blessing He has in heavenly places, He's freely given to us in Christ. Verse 4, just as He, we're going to list some of these, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that's before you did anything right or wrong. Before you did anything right or wrong, He chose you. He chose you, you didn't choose Him. You're not in the family of God because you made such a wise choice. You couldn't have the opportunity to make that choice if He hadn't already chosen you. And He chose you knowing everything about you. Knowing everything you have done, knowing everything you ever will do, and He still chose you. Now what did He choose you? He chose you, first of all, that we should be holy and without blame before Him. Stop there a second. He chose you not so that you would become holy and without blame. He chose you to make you holy and without blame. Because you can't stand before Him unless you're holy and without blame. So in order for you to be with Him, in order for you to be His child, He had to make you holy and without blame. Otherwise, if you stood before Him, you would fry on the spot. So He did this. Why? Why did He make you holy and without blame? And of course, He did it through Christ dying for you, through the payment of your sins. He, that you would be holy and without blame. Look at those last two words. In love. Look at them. He did all that, we know that, but He did it in love. What motivated Him before the foundation of the world to send His Son... The only one, the only thing that could ever qualify you and, and me and make us holy and without blame before Him was the death of someone that was righteous and the only one who was righteous was His Son. And so He willingly, it says in, in, in um, uh, Isaiah 53, verse 10, it pleased Him to bruise His Son. It pleased Him, not because He's sadistic, not because He was angry at His Son, because He saw what that would do. It would get you with Him. It would remove the disqualification. It would allow Him to make you holy and without blame before Him. And what motivated Him, what was behind sending Jesus to the earth, what was behind sending Jesus to the cross, what was behind His going into hell and being raised from the dead, what was behind that and motivated Him 100% was His love for you. 
not for himself, his love for you. He did it in love. Well, it goes on. Verse 5, having predestined us according us to adoption as sons. So he didn't just want us to be holy without blame. He wanted you to be his son and daughter in his family, his children. So he did this so you and I could become his child. That speaks of relationship. That speaks of belonging to. It's been interesting because this last week we've been on vacation with our two youngest sons, our twins, and, and whenever they come in, they like to talk about, the, especially when we all get together, talk about the past. Last night we were looking at old videos and, 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 and old photographs and remembering things. So we're remembering a sense of family, a sense of belonging to one another. And in a family, you know, you, all of you know that, you know, sometimes you step on one another's toes. Sometimes, you know, you say something you shouldn't say. But in a real family where there's love, th- those things get healed. It's a family is also a place where you can grow and make mistakes and learn. Because you know that's the one place you're safe. Now, that's in a healthy family. I realize there are many families out there that aren't healthy like that. But this is what the family of God is like also. And God drew us, not just into heaven, into a relationship with Him. And so many people want the benefits, but they don't want the relationship. Mainly because I don't think they realize it's possible. A relationship of a father and son. If you did not have a good relationship with your father, this will heal it. This will heal it. I'm not against psychology. I'm not against counseling. Those can help. But the only thing that's really going to fill that void is knowing how much your heavenly father loves you, that you're precious to him and beginning to allow that get down in your heart. And this only happens by meditation. This is why Wednesday night we're learning how to renew our mind to these things. We're learning practical skills to take these truths and get them down in our hearts so they become a reality to you. Because just reading it, hearing it on a Sunday morning isn't going to do it. It's going to make you know it's possible, but it's not going to make it a reality in your life. To adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. Look at this. I love these words. To himself. He didn't just want you to say to be some child that's off there somewhere. He wanted you to himself. He wanted you to belong to him. Because he loves you. Because that's God's heart and God's nature. We have to move along. According to his good pleasure of his will. This was to satisfy the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of the glory, verse 6, of his grace by which he, the New King James says, made us accepted in the Beloved, some other translations say, by which he freely bestowed upon us. Talking about his grace, his love towards us. Now let's go to chapter 2. There's so much we could spend time in here. Talking about Christ died and Christ was raised from the dead. That's at the end of chapter 1. Verse 2, and you... Now, he made alive is in italics in the New King James, which means it's not in the original Greek. So we're going to say, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, the same way the world walks, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the other. Our nature made us hostile to God. Why? Because by our nature we were selfish. By our nature we were living, and we've learned before we spent time, in rebellion against God. We weren't necessarily mad at Him, but we were living our own life, wanting our own way, reserving our own right to make our own choices about even God in our lives. But look at verse 4. But God. But God. This is what we were like. This is where he found us. But God, who is rich in mercy. Who is rich in mercy. He doesn't have a little eyedropper amount that when you get in trouble, Bruce, he just comes over and you say, Okay, let me see. I don't want to give him too much because Jerry's going to need some. So, okay, now i got enough, I think, for Jerry. Okay, we've got, let's see. Anybody else need it here this morning? I've got to make sure i got enough. No, 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 no. God's rich in it. He's rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. 
He's rich in mercy. He's rich in it. Not just has some. He's rich in mercy. Filthy rich in it. Rich is talking about the abundance of what someone has. If we'd spent the time going through chapter 1, we'd say, He's rich in grace. The riches of His grace. The riches of His mercy. Look at this. Because of. The word because in the Greek means this is what motivated Him. Because of. What motivated Him. I love the Amplified. It says, because of and in order to satisfy. The New King James says, because of His great love which, with which He loved us. What motivated God to do all of this is the great love with which He loved us. Again, the Amplified says, because of and in order to satisfy the great and intense love with which God loves us. The word satisfy, you understand what that means? You ever get really thirsty? You ever get really hungry? You just have to have something? Oh, come on now. Don't look so holy in me. Walking by that piece of pie that you know you shouldn't eat, and you just, you're, you know, it screams at you, I, I have to have it. Or you know where the ice cream is in the freezer, and I, I have to have it. You just, the more you think about it, the more you have to have it, the more God thought about you, the more God had to have you. He had to do it, whatever the cost, to satisfy that deep inner yearning and longing to have you for himself. That's what motivated him. That's what's behind the gospel. That's the heart of God. All the things we've been learning, all the principles we've been learning, that's, this is the why. We've looked, looked at what, and now we're looking at why. This is everything. Because the what kills, but the why gives life. Why does it give life? Because the inner deep need of every human being is to be loved, to be needed, to be important to someone, and even more so to someone that's greater than they are, that can give them a love that's beyond what any human love can give. This is when Jesus talked to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He says, but I, if you ask of me, I have a water. If you ask of me, I'm going to give you a water that will satisfy you. You'll never thirst again. And that water is to satisfy that deep inner longing we all have to be important to be significant to be cared for protected but most of all loved by somebody Barbara Streisand had it right what the world needs or somebody did what the world needs now is love sweet love I don't know where I got that one from but that's what the world needs but they can't give it human love doesn't go like this Human love doesn't fill that need because it's conditional. Human love says, I'll love you because you've loved me. But if you stop loving me, I'm not so sure anymore. <laughs> so I've got to keep this thing going. I've got to keep being nice to you so you keep being nice to me. Well, a mother's love. Well, that's true. But a mother's love most always is still ultimately selfish. It's satisfying my need to take care of my child. It can be sacrificial at times. But this love of God is a different classification of God. So much so that when they wrote the New Testament, they took an old Greek word that was very seldom used and they assigned that particular word to this kind of love. In English, we use the word love and it can mean everything from I love peanuts to I love my wife and there better be a difference. (laughs) And if I hadn't learned that a long time ago, I still wouldn't be married after 48 years. But in the Greek, there are basically five words, there are about three that are primarily used, that, that refer to the different types of love. They're everything from, from, from the word eros, which means an erotic or sexual desire for somebody, but the word phileo, which is a friendship, which is most often what we mean by love. But there's a word agape, which was very seldom used before the New Testament writers. And the Spirit of God shows that word because it was, didn't have a connotation in other, other context. And this word means a different class of love. And the way this word is defined is not by a dictionary. The way this word is defined is by the cross. God gave definition to this word. 
And we're going to look at it. We may not get to look at it today, but we're going to look and fill in. You know, we're, today what we're doing is we're, we're, we're putting the outline on the you know, coloring books. My grandkids like the color, although we're getting a little old for that. And, but so what they do is you turn to a page and there's an outline of something and then you know what it is. You can see what it is, but you get to color it in. And you get to choose your own color. Well, we're not going to choose our colors. We're letting God choose the colors. We're going to fill in the color of what this love is like over today and over next, next week and, and maybe beyond that. But it's the heart, the heart of the gospel. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son because of and in order to satisfy the great and intense love with which God loves us. He gave His only Son. He made us alive together with Christ. Wow, just think about that. He made us alive together with Christ. You understand that Jesus went to the cross, gave His life up, so that He was the only begotten Son. He gave His life up so that He could share His Sonship with everyone that would come. He could share His position with the Father with everyone that would come. He could share His Father with everyone that would come. He could share His exalted position. He could share His glory. He could share His inheritance with everyone that would come. He didn't just come and offer it. He gave His life so that we could be partakers of everything that He had. He didn't just come back into heaven and was raised from the dead to go back to where He was before. He did all that so you and I could come with Him so that He could be the firstborn, it says in Romans 8, of many brethren. That's what God's love is like. It has no regard for itself. We're going to look at this more detail next week. I was reading through a commentary, a book I've been reading this summer, and something struck me, and I mentioned it a few weeks ago. Nowhere in the Bible that I can remember does God ever brag about how much it cost Him to save you? He'll talk about the cost, but only so we'll understand how much He loved us. But He never talks about, well, you know, this is what I did for you. You ought to be pretty grateful for what I did for you. But that's so often what we do. We make a big sacrifice for somebody, and we write it down in the logbook. Keep that one down there, because I'm going to need that someday. And even if we don't use that to come back and say, you know what I did for you, we feel pretty good about ourselves. Because I'm, 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 I'm a real loving person. Look, what I, look at how much I gave last year. Look what I've done for somebody. Or we, the other side of it, we come to the end of our day and like, you know, well, I didn't do anything for anybody. I'm not much of anything. Still measuring ourselves by ourselves. All God's focus was on you and me, what we needed. And whatever that cost he not only was willing to pay, it gave him great joy to pay it because for the joy that was set before him, Hebrews 12 says, Jesus endured the cross. And that joy that was set before him was you. And it was me as brothers and sisters with him of the glory of God. I'm going to refer to a verse. We'll, we'll get into this next week because we're going to end here. In John chapter 17, don't put it up there. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying, first of all, for His disciples, and first for Himself. Then He prays for His disciples that were with Him then. And then around verse 20, He starts praying for those that would believe on Him through their word. That's us. And down in there, He says, Father, I pray that You would know. Now listen to this. I pray that You would know that You love them as much as You love me. Think about that. Jesus' prayer to His precious Father was that God would show us that He loves us as much as He loves Jesus. I remember the first time I read that, my mind balked. It said, I can't say that. It's got to be looking at it wrong. It can't mean that God loves me as much as He loves Jesus until I realized the proof of it is what he was willing to pay to have me. When you buy a new shirt, or ladies, you buy a dress, 
or you buy a car, you've made a decision that what you're getting is worth at least the price you're paying for it. Because if you look at that car or you look at that dress or you look at that shirt or you look at whatever it is and you say, yeah, I like it, but I don't want to part with this $25 or I don't want to part with this $12,000, whatever. I don't want to part with it because it's not worth that much to me. God looked at you and He looked at His Son and He said, I want them enough to pay this price. I love you but I love them enough to have them, i got to sacrifice you to have them. That's what the word so means. That's the heart of the gospel. For God so loved you. So the gospel we're going to learn to go share is a gospel that has at its heart. In everything that's done, it must have as its heart and motivation God's love for them. God's love for that person at work that you've been trying to witness to. Maybe it's not working because you're not starting from the foundation of love. So start praying for them. If you want to build love towards somebody, start praying for them. I don't mean God get them. I mean God open their eyes to the truth. God, you love them as much as you love me. Open their eyes to see how much you love them. And may I be a channel of that. Give me some opportunity to be a channel of your love for them. And as you become a channel of God's love for them, guess what? The hose can't possibly have water flow through it without the hose getting wet. You can't give love away without getting more yourself. We're going to pick up here next week because we're going to begin to look at what this love is like. It is the heart of the gospel is not your love for people, not mine. It's God's love in us for them. That's the power of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today. I pray, Lord, we've heard the word. Thank you for the spirit. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you most of all that you've demonstrated your love towards us. But Father, we could leave here today and, and be encouraged we could leave here today maybe challenged but unless this becomes a reality in our own lives Lord it, we'll miss it so uh, my prayer for all of us myself included is that you would open the eyes of our understanding by your spirit that the reality of how much you love us will become so real to us that it changes and transforms us. Your word says that perfect, perfected, completed love drives out all fear. We don't have to be afraid of anything, least of all standing before you. Father, make that love real to us. Shed that love abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, in our individual lives, and in this place when we come together. In Jesus' name, amen.